Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I really super appreciate it. And I did kind of peer at the chat, and I want to say a special hello and shout out to my two sleep medicine fellows. You guys are awesome for clicking in today. And look at this, I'm giving you a big wave and I and I hope you're waving back at me, both of you. Um, but no, this is gonna be for all my, my the sleep uh, fellows out there throughout the country who are gonna be taking their sleep boards. And even if you're not, you just wanna learn more about sleep, um, you're gonna have a great time today. So I thought it'd be appropriately titled with the boards coming up, No Time to Sleep, I'm trying to be a little funny there, but, you know, the sleep boards are actually, you know, really, you know, they have great questions. They really cover the big spectrum of when we talk about what sleep medicine is. And let's get started. So the first question I'm going to ask is going to be one of my favorites because of the fact that, you know, everyone always asks me, hey, um, you're a pulmonologist. Do pulmonary people are the majority of what do sleep medicine? And the answer is not really, you know, maybe in the beginning way back when I thought, hey, you know what, you know, it's sleep apnea, it's all about non-invasive ventilation. Maybe that's sleep medicine, it's all about pulmonary. But, you know, as my fellows know, as people know, it's all about psychiatry and neurology. It's all about insomnia and hypersomnia. So, but I couldn't resist putting a poem question in here, okay? We have a 72 year old dude with hypercapnic COPD. Um, he started using BPAP in a spontaneous and time mode during sleep. He reports feeling as if his device is kind of breathing for him uh, before he's ready to actually take a breath in. He also reports uh, more frequent awakenings during sleep since starting uh, his use of the device. Which of the following changes to the patient's BPAP settings would be most likely to improve his daytime, his dyssynchrony? So a couple things about this question. Number one, COPD. When we talk about COPD, you know, if you're retaining CO2, that can't be a good thing. Your COPD has got to be pretty, pretty severe. And how do I know severity? Well, I didn't really give you some spirometry. We usually judge that by that FEV1. But I can tell you one thing that in COPD, the hardest part about it is getting the breath what? Out. It's getting the breath out because where is the obstruction? On exhalation. You know what I mean? So what does it mean to be BPAP? Well, I purposely didn't use the word BiPAP because BiPAP's like a brand, you know what I mean? When you say a Diet Coke or a Pepsi, we call it BPAP or it's a bi-level. You have an inspiratory pressure and expiratory pressure. Spontaneous and timed, well, just like any old ventilator, spontaneous breaths have to be triggered. And how do you trigger the breaths? Well, we'll talk about that, but they could be triggered based upon pressure. They could be triggered based upon flow. And timed, that's like setting the respiratory rate, right, folks? Meaning that, hey, if I want you to breathe 12 times per minute, it's timed at 12, you know what I mean? And you want to breathe above that, well, you could do it spontaneously. All right, and what does it mean right here? It's, uh, you know, the bright the device is breathing for him before he's ready to breathe in. So remember, when we talk about the respiratory cycle, you know, inspiration is what type of process, everyone? Active or passive? That's right, it's active. You gotta think if you wanna take a breath in. Expiration is usually what? 
passive. It just happens. You know what I mean? So when it says the device is breathing for him, it means someone is jamming in an inspiratory breath before he's ready to breathe in because that's what the machine does. The machine doesn't help you with expiration. You do that what? Naturally. You know what I mean? It's like giving you another inspiratory breath. And of course, if that's happening throughout the night, I wouldn't be sleeping comfortably. I would have multiple awakenings. I would have, you know, just poor quality of life during the day. And you know what the big word is? It's called dyssynchrony. So here are the choices. A, what do you want to do to have this COPD guy be more in sync with his, you know, non-invasive bi-level device? Do we want to increase the inspiratory time? A, B, lengthening the rise time. C, increase the cycle sensitivity. What is that? Uh, D, increase the triggering sensitivity. Uh, what do you folks think, you know? And I always say one day I wish we could do this in person because that'd be so fun, but not until then, we've got to play this game. So how do I kind of go over this question? Number one, so if you increase the inspiratory time in someone with COPD, more time on inspiration, less time in expiration, does that sound like a good thing in general? The answer is no, I, I definitely wouldn't do that. You know what I mean? And he said that he's getting a breath and he's not even ready to get a breath in. Don't give him more time on inspiration. You know what I mean? And I'll say it right now before I forget. So people with COPD are, they if they're it's pretty bad, you may develop something called what? Air trapping. You know what I mean? And if you air trap so much and you shoot a chest x-ray on someone with COPD, what would you see on chest x-ray? Flattening of the diaphragms, increased AP diameter, barrel-shaped chest. So that doesn't sound good to increase the uh, inspiratory time. What about lengthen the rise time? What does that mean? So when you get that, let's say you do a bi-level and you're set at 10 over five, to get to that pressure of 10 on inspiration, you're gonna have more time you're gonna, to get to that 10 of pressure. That's more time at inspiration, less time on expiration. Does that sound like a good thing, COPD? I'm gonna go with no on that for the same reason. So A and B are gone. So it really comes down to C and D, doesn't it? So D is talking about triggering. So does it seem like this person's having trouble triggering this non-invasive? The answer is no, because he's getting that breath before he even wants it. So it's not really a triggering problem. So even if you didn't know what cycle sensitivity was, you're kind of bullied into picking it. But we'll talk what it is in a few seconds. But basically, cycle sensitivity means turning off the breath. You know what I mean? So if you increase the cycle sensitivity, you'll turn off the inspiratory breath earlier. Now, folks, if you turn off the inspiratory breath earlier, that means you got more time for what? That's right. Expiration. Does that sound something that someone with COPD would probably benefit from? And the answer is yeah, totally, totally. So the answer is C. So this is gonna be a nice little shot about what, you know, dyssynchrony is and some of the main parts of what we're talking about. Down here, this is the triggering, right? And you're gonna trigger through pressure trigger or flow trigger. This is gonna be the pressure support that's gonna be added to the expiratory pressure. This and expiratory pressure is kind of like what? PEEP. So when you do BiPAP 10 over 5, it's going to be 10 above the PEEP for a total inspiratory pressure of what? 15. So the IPAP is going to be that expiratory pressure plus what you dial in. So like I said, 5 plus 10 is what? 15. And how long does it take you to get up to this 15? It really depends on, you know, the the rise time that we talked about, the shorter the rise time, the quicker you'll get there. So we'll talk about that um, 
even more in the next picture. So here are going to be the things we talked about to be in sync with this non-invasive. You know, if they were not triggering the, the uh, you know, the breast, they could, you know, help with the triggering sensitivity, make a to make the flow a little less, uh, decrease the number so less flow would trigger it or decrease the pressure so less pressure would trigger it. And this is the triggering over here. This is the rise time that we talked about over here. So as you lengthen the rise time, it takes longer to get there. And of course, when you talk about the inspiratory time itself, it's how long do you stay in this plateau up there? So if you want to have more time to blow out on expiration, you would shorten the inspiratory time. And the cycling sensitivity is right here when you want to turn the breath off. Now, to show you what that means, it's right here. So when we talk about the cycle sensitivity, which is this right over here, it's going to look like this inspiratory flow. So anything above this line is inspiration. So as you increase the cycle sensitivity, like the question saying, the inspiratory breath, as the inspiratory flow is coming in, it will shut off earlier so if you increase the sensitivity it will cycle off at 50 percent or 60 percent or 70 percent which means that you'll have more time for what expiration so going back i didn't purposely try to skip anything this area within this whole breath over here is going to be the tidal volume you generate because you're controlling the what the pressures like being on pressure control ventilation you know what i mean pac um so these are nice little diagrams showing what we talked about already. So if you decrease the rise time, you're gonna increase, if you're gonna go to your peak inspiratory pressure faster, more time for expiration. If you increase the rise time, it takes longer to get there, less time to blow out. And when we talk about inspiratory time over here, we said in yellow, if you increase the rest, the inspiratory time, more time and inspiration, you don't want that in COPD decreasing the inspiratory time. Well, in, in certain cases, you may want to do that, especially in someone who's prone to air trap, more time to blow out. So with that being said, I know we kind of came out with a real kind of toughy question for the first one, but no way, no matter which way you cut it, you're definitely going to get questions about, you know, CPAP and bi-level um, management of these non-invasive devices. So let's talk about this 36-year-old gentleman without any significant past medical history is referred for symptoms of fragmented sleep with sleep maintenance insomnia. He has some daytime sleepiness. His effort score is 13. Could be worse. His wife has observed that the patient has apneas throughout the night, but denies any snoring. All right. The patient's sleep disruption and observed sleep disorder breathing occur more during the first half of the night and improves as the night progresses. Now that's kind of weird because I'm gonna tell you, sounds like we're, we, we're talking about observed apneas and the most common type of apnea is always gonna be obstructive, right? Obstructive apnea is super, super duper common. Um, central is not so much, but you know, when we talk about obstructive apneas, everyone, what um, stage of sleep do we see obstructive apneas the most? Any guesses? Yeah, I would kind of say REM sleep. And why do we see more obstructives in REM than in our stage? Well, what makes REM so unique? Yeah, is we, we, we kind of lose that muscle tone, especially the muscles wear in the upper airway. So if we see obstructive apneas the most in REM sleep, 
when do we get most of our, our REM sleep? Is it kind of like in the beginning of the night? No, not really the first half. We get most of our REM what? Like towards the morning, you know what I mean? And I guess that's why, you know, some of us tend to wake up from a dream, you know what I mean? But this is weird. Most of the apneas happen in the first half. All right. And they improve as the night goes on. Symptoms are not positional, uh, red flag, because when we talk about OSA, you and I both know what position do we see obstructive apneas in the most? Yeah, it's going to be, you know, when you're supine. Why? Because of that tongue, you know what I mean? The gravity effect is going to block off the airway. But this type of apnea is not positional, all right, and are not associated with any awakenings related to shortness of breath. He denies any cardiac disease or other chronic pain syndromes. I mean, all right, Mina, I'll give you this, that you definitely worry about obstructive apneas and cardiac disease for sure, you know what I mean, and, and chronic pain syndromes. Well, you do wonder if the patients are taking what? Opioids. Now, let's think outside the box. I mean, is there a certain type of central sleep apnea that occurs in people who have, like, bad heart disease? Yeah, I mean, you folks are awesome. It's what? Yeah, Sheen-Stokes respiration. So, but he doesn't really seem to have cardiac disease, and you're going to have some pretty bad CHF. You're going to have a, a pretty low ejection fraction to really get that Sheen-Stokes. Uh, chronic pain syndromes, well, I mean, it's kind of mean if they give him central sleep apnea secondary to opioids if he's not on any opioids. So, he mentioned it. All right. So, no restless leg syndrome symptoms. So, you know, we talked about difficulty initiating sleep. Uh, no depression, and he has no history of stroke or other neurological diseases. And I also think that's important because, you know, people with uh, neuromuscular diseases can get both central and obstructive sleep apnea. So they're telling you that, hey, it's probably not myasthenia gravis, it's probably not Eaton Lambert, you know, maybe there's no uh, Chiari malformation in there, <laughs> I assume. So they're telling me what it's not. He also has, also denies dyspnea exertion or lower extremity edema. Uh, patients on no medications and i guess he lives in uh oh he lives in the midwest well right now it's better than living in poor florida but uh and my heart goes out to anyone out there that has any loved one or someone that lives in florida uh so they this person lives in the midwest and lives at an altitude of a thousand feet oh boy um he's a non-smoker physical exam bmi of 24 vital signs and physical exam is normal they do some tests and labs. They do spirometry, and it's normal. They do an echo and an ECG and a urine tox, and all that is normal. They do an arterial blood gas, and it looks like, I mean, for all extensive purposes, if you wanted to say the word normal, I'm good with that. If you wanted to be a stickler, the pH is slightly elevated at 7.45. The CO2 is slightly decreased, kind of like normal to borderline respiratory alkalosis okay i could buy that so they do a split night psg and a characteristic sleep disorder breathing findings you know from baseline and the cpap titration so they did both um are shown so we're going to show you some of the characteristic findings on the baseline and some of the characteristic findings on the cpap titration here we go so here is the baseline, I guess this is end to sleep. And that kind of makes sense, right? Most of the patient's symptoms occurred during the first half of the night and the predominant stage of sleep is definitely going to be end two in general. Was that like almost 50% of our sleep stages is end to sleep. So what do we see here? And there you go. 
Yeah, a little bit over here, over here, and over here. So, I mean, to keep it really straightforward, I see no effort and no flow. No effort, no flow. Very opposite of obstructive apneas, which is lots of effort, but no flow. All right. So this is going to be the images during the CPAP titration. And lo and behold, very similar to the baseline, uh, no effort, no flow, no effort, no flow. And this is also going to be an N2 sleep. So here's exactly what it showed during the baseline. Total HI is 50. The REM HI is zero. Look at the central apnea index. Boom, it's greater than 50% of the total HI, way more. So this is going to be central sleep apnea, right? So do a CPAP titration and Lo and behold, it pretty much did nothing to those central apneas. Maybe just a smidge, who knows, but still lots of central apneas there. So question, which one of the following is the most likely diagnosis? So class learners, is it going to be A, central sleep apnea caused by high altitude? I think he lives in the Midwest at 1,000 feet. Is this going to be central sleep apnea with Sheen-Stokes respiration? B, C, primary central sleep apnea, or D, treatment emergent central sleep apnea. So which ones can we kind of cross off? You know, I think that Sheen-Stokes, I mean, it's not going to have the characteristic findings of Sheen-Stokes. You know, duration of the central apneas, the shape of the central apneas, crescendo, decrescendo. It doesn't have the smoking gun of cardiac disease or you know, uh, CNS. So I'll take that one out. Um, treatment emergent centrals, you know, we do see that quite a bit. It's very common to get treatment emergent centrals, especially with CPAP. But, you know, we saw these even before we put on the CPAP mask. So we're really down to A, uh, high altitude, or C. And you folks could just yell it out. What's the right answer? Man, you guys are so loud um yeah it's gonna be what it's gonna be c i know i know someone said a and i kind of set you up for that it's my fault so when we talk about you know high altitude um well how high do you got to get to start noticing these things and i don't know if you folks watch my um pulmonary lecture for api i gave this whole spiel about high altitude we talked about high altitude mountain sickness and haste and hape haste stands for high altitude cerebral edema or pulmonary edema. And usually we start thinking about this around 8,000 feet. And you know, when you're in a plane, we kind of pressurize the cabin to sea level because the plane's up around 8,000 feet. So 1,000 feet is really not high at all. You know what I mean? So getting this at 1,000 feet wasn't gonna be the answer. So, you know, why do they have, it's not on narcotics, doesn't have heart disease, no stroke. They're really trying to set you up for a diagnosis of exclusion. So anytime we talk about central sleep apnea, it's just rare. It's just rare. And you folks know that on the board exams and clinically that if you get someone with central sleep apnea, it's on a home test, even if you do kind of a watch pat, you know what I mean? Peripheral arterial tone. And I understand it got FDA approval for central sleep apnea detecting, but in practical purposes and on the board exams, you really do want to confirm it with an in-lab PSG because they're just not that common. And anytime you have someone with central sleep apnea, what is the question? Why?
because of the fact that you always want to treat what the underlying cause you always want to treat what the underlying cause you know what i mean so a couple of the buzzwords over here was i mentioned hey we see central sleep apnea a lot more in n1 and n2 sleep and we don't really see it in uh in ram and who could tell me why because one of my favorite questions is always going to be why and it comes down to sensitivity those chemoreceptors and where are those chemoreceptors well sure there's some in the cns some are going to be where in the aorta some are going to be where in the carotids aortic arch and carotids they sense what uh dissolved co2 and dissolved o2 and when we talk about chemoreceptor sensitivity you know i mean you're going to be the least sensitive in where in REM sleep and because you're not really sensitive at all what's going to happen to the co2 levels everyone they're going to go super duper high. Then finally they get, they, you know, these chemoreceptors are going to sense it. And next thing you know, they, you have that hyperventilation to blow it off. So that's why we don't see a lot of, you know, um, Sheen Stokes when we talk about, or central apneas when we talk about REM sleep, because the fact that it's the key, reduced chemoreceptor responsiveness. We just don't see it. We really do see it where? In non-REM sleep. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.